Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Chris Blackwell. He's a purpose pioneer who talks about all things business and purpose. He's the CEO of Purpose-Led Performance and the co-founder of a community called Purpose Collective. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. Would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background and what you do? Yeah, so I work with uh, businesses and leaders to help them be better to do better. So be better is about purpose, about impact, about engagement. Do better is about profit, performance, and growth. How did I get here? Well, I'm a Wigan Scouser. Uh, so that's where I grew up in Wigan, but from Scouse background. And when I was 18, I went to live in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in India to learn about Buddhism. Turned out that wasn't a great place to learn about Buddhism, but I came back with a phrase, which is the meaning of life is to be happy and useful. And so I messed about for quite a few years, uh, spent some time in Japan, went to university. And then age 25, I got my first proper grown-up job. And I was seeking to be happy and useful in my career. Now, in that business, I joined a very purpose-driven business. It just came into the UK. I was helping long-term unemployed people back into work. And uh, over my time there, in six and a half years, I went from frontline to deputy CEO. The business had grown to 50 million revenue. Next three and a half years, it grew to 120 million revenue. And then I took those lessons to be the UK MD of an American corporate. And I helped grow that business from 25 million to 170 in the UK. So a lot of my background is in growing businesses in general management. And then I did a couple of CEO roles in the corporate world. And that's when the penny dropped me that a lot of the corporate world is dysfunctional. And Mm -hmm. what I thought was the sensible way to run a business was actually the exception rather than the norm. And that's why I set up purpose-led performance. And that's why I do the work that I do today. So you've obviously got a, a great pedigree with um, scaling businesses up. And I know that you do, you're the lead for uh, scale up uh, within uh, Birmingham Tech Week. So I'm really curious about something. What, what are the root causes of high performance? In fact, in general, what are the root causes of performance? And are people looking for them? Or are they simply looking at symptoms and byproducts? I think people are looking at symptoms and byproducts. And so I think there's two reasons to look at the, the roots of performance. One is actually when you're underperforming. You know, that's the most commonly when, when underperformance is happening, people tend to look at it, but I would say they don't look at it in enough detail. A lot of businesses, I think, misfunction because they've got people looking at spreadsheets, looking at numbers, moving them around and not connecting that with reality. And they think if they make a change on a spreadsheet, that's just instantly going to improve performance. But I'd also say kind of from an ethical point of view, businesses should pay as much attention to high performance and the root causes of high performance. Is it genuine high performance or are people cutting corners? Is it genuine high performance or are you just lucky to be in a market that's growing? In which case, when you hit the, you know, the economic bumpers, all of a sudden that balloon gets punctured pretty quickly. We saw this in COVID. When COVID kicked off, there are a number of companies who thought that they had managed to expand their market reach. What had actually happened was the market had expanded around them, and now it's contracting, and then lost all of that because they were looking at the wrong place for their performance. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so very interesting. Yeah. Okay. And I, I actually think, you know, that there's a lot of stupidity, if you forgive me for being a bit <laughs> no, contentious. No, not in, at all. In the world of business analysts and, and people, you know, a lot of publicly traded companies 
you'd say, look at Peloton during COVID. You look at Netflix. And it was pretty obvious that they were having a bump that was to do with the fact that COVID was going on. Yeah. And it didn't take a, a genius or a rocket scientist to figure out if the world started to return to normal, their growth curve would start to return to normal and what it was pre-COVID. And so you got all of these hyperinflated valuations going on because of a trend that wasn't going to continue. And so I, I do wonder, you know, looking at root causes of underperformance or overperformance, people just don't look into the detail enough. They're quite happy with a good answer. If it seems like things are going well, they don't like to, to, to rock the apple cart. It's really interesting that people come to you for the fads, but they stay with you for the foundations. And what would be really interesting is to see what the Netflixes or the Pelotons actually did while making hay. So Zoom would be another great example. Yeah. You know, as soon as COVID hit, Zoom had something like a thousands fold increase in demand. It was just amazing. I had I managed to speak to one of their senior executives uh, very briefly. And th just the description of the, the work environment during that required an incredible level of management skill. Yeah. So one of the things that I think we both concluded is that middle managers are incredibly valuable if they are trained and they know what they're doing. The data on this is very depressing. And I suspect the data is similar elsewhere. In the UK, there are 2.4 million accidental managers, people who woke up one morning, were tapped on the shoulder and told, Chris, you're now the boss. And that was their runway. And they have an average of seven to eight people. So it's about 16.7 to 18.4 million adults in the United Kingdom, which is half the UK workforce, probably more. Uh, well, no, it's about half. And uh, are reporting to a manager who doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. And so they're not willfully ignorant, but they are ignorant. Yeah. And many of them are not competent to manage. I would agree with that. I mean, I tend to be, uh, you know, despite what I've said so far, I do tend to be optimistic and try and look on the, the bright side mm -hmm. of things. But I think you know, management is a skill. I think back, I did my very first management role back in, in 2004. And yeah, I got lots wrong. I was fortunate to work in an organization that had a culture of really developing its managers. So I learned pretty quickly. I was supported to develop. But I agree, you know, a lot of organizations, they throw their training budget at their senior managers. And actually, if they put some of that budget to their entry-level managers and their middle managers, they would make a much bigger difference to the bottom line because you know, good management makes a big difference to performance. Uh, again, it uh, sounds like a truism to say, but so few organizations actually behave accordingly, recognize and behave accordingly. The experience that I have, because uh, I've done a lot of work in this space now, is that the middle managers want to do well. They come to work to try and help. Unfortunately, yep. their default setting is to rescue, i.e. they help without boundaries or permission, or they do what was done to them, uh, or they do what their reptile brain te uh, tells them to, which is beat their chest, pound the desk, and bully people. So what you end up creating are the conditions where none of your staff really want to contribute, either because they're afraid that they have tall poppy syndrome and just being cut down. The other reason is it's just not worth it because Chris is going to go and do the work all over again anyway. Why bother? And if you look at Patrick Lencioni's three signs of a miserable job, it's immeasurement, irrelevance, and anonymity. 
Yeah. So again, not having a voice. There's so much evidence out there that middle managers could be the single biggest latent resource that you have available to you to catapult your business forward. If only yeah. you were to release that potential and use them as a the catalyst to get all the creative capability of every one of their team. You know, on average, that a manager gets 16 to 20 interruptions a day where someone asks for help or direction or an answer. Now, how many of those are teachable moments? And those are being lost every single day, every year in every team. Well, flip yeah. it the other way around. All of those lessons captured and applied in every team on a daily basis. The incremental knock-on effect of that is just mind-blowing. Yeah. I think most organizations lack a management philosophy. You know, if you start off with a philosophy of what it is to manage in your organization that's consistent with your strategy, consistent with your culture, and then you train your managers and then you have a process of gaining feedback and using that feedback to generate learning. And that feedback could be through formal feedback, but it could also be you know, through those learning opportunities uh, that you've just identified. So, so yeah, so I, I, I guess I agree with your, your prognosis. I think it is a big issue and it doesn't need to be. If we go back to that company that you first started with, that you said really was very purpose-led, what were the values that you all shared that were at the heart of uh, that purpose? So as a business, that business was focused on helping people into work. So I had a really clear purpose. Our purpose was to help people into work that other people had given up on. And underlying that was a belief and a value that work is anybody could work. So anybody was, an, uh, was employable. A belief that work is fundamentally good for people. And then, you know, the values were one of being solution focused. So everybody in the business was solution-focused. Strong accountability. So when I was in that business, the CEO, when I very first became a manager, the CEO came to visit me. And so we'd got all the office all spruced up and all looking nice. I was really excited as a relatively new manager. And rather than take the lift, he walked up the stairs to the office. We were two flights up. And he came walking in holding this snotty tissue. And he said, Chris, I'm really disappointed because walking up the stairs today, I've walked past this snotty tissue. And I've thought, how many people, has Chris walked past this snotty tissue this morning? How many people in the team have walked past the snotty tissue? And what does that say about our respect for our customers? We're customer-facing business. We'd have, you know, 20, 30 people per hour coming in to the office. And I always remember, and this was a big management and leadership lesson to me. He said, this is an organization where I don't want anybody to walk past the snotty tissue. If you see a snotty tissue, you pick it up and you put it in the bin, literally or metaphorically. And that was part of the culture and the values of the organization, which is if you see something, fix it. I think one of the other values of the organization, which was really strong, was around about recruit bright people, but then let them get on with it. Let them figure out how to do things. And what that gave is a, a, a tremendous sense of ownership of your job role and a tremendous sense of ownership of the organization and, and what you could do. So we understood in that business that it was the middle managers and the frontline managers that made the biggest difference to the performance. And so we really invested in them and we really focused on that kind of coaching 
of those middle managers and talked a lot about performance. And the coaching, was that on the job in the moment or was that an hour set aside with a structure and a grow model? How did you go about framing that? At the delivery level, our frontline managers, their manager would be based in the office with them. So a lot of that would be observation. But Do you coach what you see? Coach what you see. But then we would, you know, we didn't do annual reviews. Typically, you would sit down. Everybody in the business would sit down with their manager all the way right up to the top of the business at least twice a month. And one of those would be a performance review and one of those would be more of a kind of coaching session. Of, uh, you know, let's talk through how you're doing your role. Let's talk through some of the challenges you're facing. Let's talk through some specific scenarios that you're dealing with. Right. Okay. So that would typically be sort of more of a structured coaching. Was yeah. there coaching on the job in the moment? And there was with those frontline managers. So if I think back, so in that business, your frontline managers manage the teams of employment advisors. And then the operations manager would be on site um, in some sites, big sites every day in, in smaller sites would be there two or three days a week. So when I was doing that role, um, you know, I would observe what my managers were doing. The nature of that business was one where you could observe what was going on. But you were getting an apprenticeship. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. So an old school apprenticeship. Well, this again, I, I'm really interested because I, I, I fundamentally believe what we should be doing is developing a management apprenticeship scheme. And it should be a runway that lasts 18 to 24 months before you move into your first management role. When I hire, I recruit people and then I ask them very early on what their next job is going to be. So we start coaching them into that role from day one. Now, if they want to move into management, I want them onboarding the next person. Oh, I want them onboarding the next person anyway, because they're closest to it. But I want them onboarding so that they can start coaching. I then want them to get involved in interviews. I want to get them involved in running sales meetings, in territory planning, in forecasting, all those functions so that they know how to do it. The beauty is then I can delegate that stuff and yep. more, than, uh, more than one person in the team can do it which then broadens their scope because they come at it from a different perspective to me because they've got unique point of view based on demographics, education, age, uh, religious orientation, all that kind of stuff. They've got a different perspective. Yeah. So we can enrich it. Yeah. I think one of the things that I would say, though, is, is we don't do a good job of really describing the challenges uh, and the downsides of management. And so a lot of people want to become managers because that's just seen as the way to progress. But actually, being a manager involves quite a lot of pain and stress at times. Uh, and I meet a lot of people who manage people who hate the fact that, you know, the, the people management aspect of it. And there are different types of management roles. So there are more technical roles, people who manage processes, people who manage projects. It all involves an aspect of people management. But there are a lot of management jobs which are almost 100% people management. That isn't for everybody. And I think we need to have a better approach to describing the reality of what it is to manage people. Because you know, I think people like the title and the salary increase, but often not the role. Well, this then really brings us very neatly into the conversation 
that originally got the two of us together, which is around ethics, because there seems to be a dearth of good informational discussion, at least, on LinkedIn, where if you type in the hashtag uh, sales ethics, nothing came up. Business ethics was a paltry number, and ethics generally was, you know, that's a generic term, and that was disappointing too. And I'm curious uh, in terms of you know, whether or not you get involved in conversations around ethics with your clients, first of all. I don't, I don't want to set you up to fail on the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I don't. I, I guess I don't use the phrase ethics that much. I think it tends to right, to switch people off. I know, and it also sounds. I mean, I did a philosophy degree, um, sadly, because it it turned out that I was a better pub philosopher than an academic <laughs> philosopher. But I do talk about doing the right thing, which is is you know that's the the, the plain speaking way of, of talking about ethics. And one of the things that I do speak to my clients about is that there doesn't have to be a conflict between doing the right thing and succeeding in business. I think often there is a perception that, you know, get the job done, dog eat dog, the ends justify the means. There's a lot of kind of bullshit business speak, which is like, you know, basically shorthand for behave like an asshole. Uh, and do what favors you in the in the short term. And so the clients I work for are already kind of bought into wanting to do the right thing, but also succeed. But one of the things that, that I've been writing a little bit about recently on LinkedIn and thinking about is this observation that people behave differently in a business context, and people will behave in a way that they wouldn't in their personal lives and yet it's normalized in a business context. So, you know, people will lie. People will cheat. People will do take something advantage. that they know is going to cause, will take advantage of others. This is one of the really interesting things because I think um, you, know, you, you hear a lot at the moment about uh, you know, respect and diversity, inclusion, treating people with dignity, and I absolutely buy into that. However... What I'm often seeing is people are making uh, the right choice, but then because of how they apply it, they're creating bad consequences because yeah. then they become very judgmental. And your values, uh, your your worth is not as great as mine. And we're seeing this polarization because I think some managers will be looking for the greatest good for the greatest number of people, a very utilitarian approach. Yeah, But often they will justify terrible decisions because it's just business. Yeah, I was only following business. orders, yeah. Your Honor. Yeah, only following orders, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, are, are we doing it because of virtue signaling? Because I see a lot of that going on. And, you know, but in their behavior, then they're a bully. You know, they, they talk about, you know, being an organization that's fully inclusive. And they attract candidates who come from minority uh, groups. And then they make it impossible for them to stay because of things like, oh, I'm only joking, mate, no offence, yeah. when clearly it's offensive. You wouldn't have to say it otherwise. So, so I think there is some good intent out there. Some of it, a lot of it is motivated by good intent. However, I do think that some of it is motivated more from the sort of PR perspective of wanting to look good, mm -hmm. doing it because you should. And I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think both can kind of coexist. 
But I would say that people don't pay enough attention to the detail. And so, you know, just having a policy, putting some nice stuff on social media, you know, having a working group that looks into it is not the job done. That's the job started. And it's getting into that messy detail to say, well, actually, if we really want to shift the dial on this, whatever it is, whether it's you know diversity at work, whether it's equality, whether it's inclusion, then you've got to get into the messy reality of where it goes down. I think a lot of people confuse intent with results. So they'll say, we want to do this, and now we've made a big declaration, and we've got a new policy, and we've done all of these things. The intent is great. Does it actually work? Has it gained traction? Has it flowed down into the organization? Has it had unintended consequences? It's those results that matter. And very few businesses and business leaders have the attention to detail to ask themselves those difficult questions because they just want to move on. They want to move on. They want to go job done, ticked off the list. It kind of feels like that's transactional. Whereas what you're talking about is where uh, you're recognizing behavior that we like and want more of uh, and where you're expecting people to participate and live those ethics, live those values. Is that right? Yes. And, and yeah. And I, and I think, you know, what was going through my mind a little bit is people want to present the best pictures. So I've been in board meetings, you know, I've had, I've been a CEO, I've had to present to the board. And, and so you'll go and you'll have initiatives and then you'll say, we're launching this. And you don't ever, there's this sort of tendency to always sell the best picture. We did this, it worked, job done, aren't I doing a great job, pat on the back. And I remember being in a few board meetings sometimes where I sort of really called out that although I'd had the right intent, whatever I tried to do hadn't worked. And I can remember somebody saying to me afterwards once, I described this big initiative and we'd done this, and I said, but it didn't work. It was a waste of time. Back to the drawing board. And somebody said, you had us, you had us, you described it, it was all bought in. You didn't need to tell us it hadn't worked. I was like, yeah, but... It hadn't worked, so that was the right thing to do. And and I do think there is this sort of driver that comes from leadership of people not wanting to be seen not to succeed. Yeah. Not necessarily say fail. Failure is a personality defect as opposed to what it is, which is just failure. It's just role failure. Who cares? Yeah. I mean, failure plays a huge role in in kind of high performance. My, My view is, you rarely get things right the first time. And I think that's borne out in science. It's borne out in you know, true high-performance teams where they, they almost make a religion of observing the failures because they recognize that's how you figure out how to get there. Whereas in most corporate environments, there is this assumption that you get it right first time. And if you don't, then that's a performance issue. Right. Uh, I, I remember... I was recruiting a VP of marketing for a client and the CFO idiotically said, well, yeah, I, I don't mind you doing all these experiments, but can you only do the ones that succeed? Yeah. And that could have been an alarm bell because as soon as he started trying to implement these experiments to test what worked and what didn't, they started whinging and bitching about him spending money. 
It was yeah. the entire reason for bringing him on was to, that you hired someone who knew what the hell he was doing. Um, yeah. It's, it's mind-blowing, really. So I'm really very, very interesting. Uh, sorry, very interested in trying to understand a little bit more about your journey in the scale-up exercise, because you went through it twice. Yeah. And I'm very interested to understand how the company changed and what was different and what the red, th- in fact, better still, what was the red thread that ran through the organization from start to finish? Because there's that consistency there. So when you go through what I would call rapid growth, you constantly have to reinvent the business. So you know, we doubled in size. Every, in that first one, we doubled in size every two years. And actually, I kind of think of growing a business is a bit like being a football team going through the football league, going from the fourth division to the third division to the second division to the first division. You have to recreate the organization each time you go up a level. And each time you go up a level, there's just a big risk that you fail. And so, you know, upgrading your systems, your processes, your talent. And so that's really hard. That's why most businesses fail to maintain growth because they're constantly having to reinvent things. And then that leads to change and change is painful. What was the red thread in that first organization, which was a really good organization and managed to go through five cycles of growth and actually continue to grow after I left successfully for, for a period of time. It was, I, I talk about these foundations being purpose which provides a context, it provides clarity, it aligns people, it engages people. Culture, culture scales more effectively than system and process in a fast growth scenario because systems and processes are very contextual to the type of organization, size of organization that you are. And when you're fast growing, you you really outgrow your systems and processes really quickly. Whereas with culture, it helps to set a tone, a direction. It's a a shorthand, it's shared language, shared myths and mythology about the business, which helps to constantly reinforce people behaving in a way that's consistent. Aspiration, I think, is really important in that growth business. You know, you've always got to always be focused on how you can improve and how you can go to the next level. And I would say aspiration rather than ambition. The two, there's not much between the two words, but I, I used to talk about ambition. And now I talk about aspiration because I think aspiration's got a slightly more positive connotation. Yeah, I wouldn't die in a ditch. I don't think the word ambition is a bad word, but I think often it's interpreted as personal ambition as opposed to at a company level. And then the other bit is talent. And so I think of those as the four foundations, purpose, aspiration, culture, and talent. And I think they all mutually reinforce in a growth organization. Talent isn't fixed. I think talent is potential plus environment plus opportunity. So when you were talking about bringing people on earlier, you talk about potential is where are you going to go? Then it's about environment. Do you create an environment where people can grow and learn and make mistakes sometimes, learn from those mistakes? And then opportunity. In a growth business, you have great opportunity because you have lots of opportunity to progress. 
because the business is growing. You get this virtuous cycle. So if you get talent, i.e. people with potential, you have a great environment, which the culture helps create, that really can help grow that talent. And that's, you know, I was, I, I think I was about employee number 40. There were about at least 10 people that I can count who are in the first 100 employees of that small organization who've gone on to be CEOs. That is like a crazy disproportionate number. Now, that, that is a huge number. I think it was due to that kind of heady mix of getting talented people, bright people with potential, and putting them in a great culture, giving them opportunities early, and then being in a growth organization, which then meant you learn so much, you know, okay. every... Every six you know, months, I was learning a whole new thing, a whole new business. Do you know the founder's origin story? No. Um, oh, no, so, sorry, the founder of, of the company, yeah. Ingius. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's got a very strong, that, that was one of the, the sort of the myths in the purpose. So uh, the founder, a lady called Therese Rain, her dad had been in a plane crash. I think it was in the Second World War, but it might not have been. And he uh, lost the use of his legs. Still a young man. And went back to this Australian company, went back to Australia and was basically told, well, that's it, mate. You know, life's over. Just take your disability pension. You don't need to work. And he really wanted to go to university. And he re- wanted to go and study to be an aeronautical engineer because his passion right. was planes. And I uh, was told, oh, no, you can't go to university. And so he had to fight the system. So he went to university. And at that point, obviously, there wasn't much in the way of accessibility. So he had had friends who'd carry up the stairs who could get the lecture halls. And then he worked, he had a long and fulfilling life as an aeronautical engineer. And that really shaped Therese's view of work and the importance of work. Um, And so she became a psychologist. And then she started to specialize in working with people with disabilities uh, who who weren't working and helping them back into work. And she she started off as a one-woman practice and then grew it into a multinational business in 10 different countries with thousands of employees. And so that founder story was really fundamental to the whole purpose of the organization. And it was told to people when they joined the business that that was the root of the organization. So, so the founder stories, it was really powerful. And was all of this done through bootstrapping organically or through funding? Therese had grown the business in Australia over a number of years. So I think she founded it in 89. And so she'd grown the business for 14 years in Australia before she came to the UK. So I don't know to what degree. I think it was mainly bootstrapped. When it came to the UK, we were sort of bootstrapped, but funded by the Australian parent. Went, in my view, and and, I left the business in 2012. At the back end of my time there, Deloitte came in and bought a 50% stake in the business. So it became a joint venture between Deloitte and Therese. And then they sold the business and then it's been sold again. And I, I actually think it was when the business was sold that it started to go off the tracks. The reason I asked was the money behind an organization permeates the culture of the organization. So I'm curious, you know, when we, you've got an inspirational leader who's uh, spotted a market of non-customers that can be created, that's a really good disruptive move. And so she's built that vision. There's a great backstory uh, that people can re- recognize and buy into. You create that culture, then the aspiration is presumably to um, fulfill the purpose. 
so I think it was on your profile. I can't remember where I saw it. You know, there's that old Chinese proverb, it's okay to grow slowly. It's not to stagnate, something along yeah. those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the means by which you execute this is your talent, that your people are your how. Yeah. The board has the what. Your managers are the executors of the how. And their job is to get your frontline staff or your, the rest of your staff to all work in a concert. So that whole piece around creating alignment is very key in terms of purpose, you know, clarity and alignment. So I can see a really healthy model there. Now, as you go through that process, it sounds to me like you have to spend quite a lot of time planning ahead at that sort of pace, because there's no way you can play catch up. Yeah, so, so I would say, so, so the nature of the business was we delivered contracts. So actually the work, we, we weren't direct to consumer, we were commissioned by government mm-hmm. to deliver services. And so what that meant is we would grow in big jumps. We'd right. win a whole bunch of new contracts and we'd have to mobilize, open new offices, recruit new people. So, so that did mean that we would go through these periods of massive stretch as we grew. We'd kind of probably slightly over-promote people a bit earlier than they were ready to be promoted. But actually, the fact that we had good people and good systems and processes and good training around them meant that most of them made it. But then we'd have these periods of consolidation where, because I think if you just grow, 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 grow with no let up. Yeah. So I have this model where I talk to with clients going through growth where you have to have stretch periods, but then you have to have consolidation periods. Because if you don't have consolidation periods, you don't learn and embed the lessons that you've made as you've gone up to that next level. Yeah. And so if your growth is linear, you almost have to create these consolidation periods where you talk about, so that might be, we're going to make a change in some of our systems, some of our processes. We might change our organizational structure. Um, You might bring in new training. So you kind of create these artificial consolidation periods if your growth is linear, where what you're essentially doing is creating steps. So at those crunch point moments what were the ethical dilemmas that you faced what were the challenges that you had to weigh up and how did you manage those so so the the sector that i worked in it was a payment by results model so you got paid when somebody got a job okay Um, so you had an incentive to make the outcome happen so you had an incentive to make the outcome happen as exists in, in in all businesses the ethical dilemma is, is, again, shortcuts, and this exists in all businesses. How do we do that? Can we just throw people into jobs? And again, because the culture was so strong, I don't think we ever really struggled with those ethical dilemmas. And I think we paid attention, but some of our competitors did, and it goes back to that attention to detail. Look at what your high performers are doing and ask, are they doing it properly? Are they doing it ethically? But I think, you know, we, we'd gone through these seven years of growth, everything. And in 2008, 2009, global financial crisis hit. We get paid for getting people into jobs. All of a sudden, the job market locks up. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, we're getting a third less people into jobs, a third less revenue. Yeah. And so that was 
tough and 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 you know we might be coming into a similar situation in the not too distant future i suspect so and so the ethical dilemma then that faces you is you 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 have to be constrained by reality how much money are we bringing in to deliver the service and so we had to make some headcount cuts and we had to slim down our delivery model it's ethical because it impacts on people's livelihoods but you shouldn't dodge that i mean if the reality is you no longer have enough money in the business to employ everybody, you have to face into that head on, you have to communicate. And so, so I think the ethics is how you communicate when you have to make hard decisions, how you give the context, the fact that you treat people like human beings. And, but I think the ethics as well there was, we didn't give up on our goal of helping people into work and we didn't give up on, pushing the envelope on performance. And so we set ourselves the task of, okay, we recognize we're going to have to change how we deliver and we're going to have to reduce our costs. But we were still going to, to look at alongside that, what can we do to improve performance? What can we do to improve delivery? And that's very hard to do both at the same time. Um, One of the accusations that can often be leveled at leadership, and um, we only have to look at our own um, uh, uh, PM is the uh, tendency of leaders to uh, forget the impact of their own behaviour. Um, yeah. You know, to, to do what I say, not what I do. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, talk to me about a time in your career as a leader where you faced a difficult time, and you, you had to make the right choice. The last organization that I worked in before I, I set up Purpose Ed Performance, I describe it as the best worst experience of my life. <laughs> okay. Um, because actually that that helped the penny drop. You know, I was kind of, I was like, ah, this is how the real world functions, not as I uh, have experienced for a lot of my career. Yeah. And, you know, so, so it was a large corporate, large UK corporate. I, I was the CEO of a joint venture business, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was in their structure. and there was a culture in the monthly reviews kind of not to be honest, to not tell the whole picture, you know, you know to really control the narrative. So it was and, a PR exercise rather than um, actual feedback. Yes. And I sort of struggled with, with that because, yeah, I, I, I've got a true belief that if you've got to be genuinely high performing, you've got to be genuinely, genuinely transparent about performance what's going well and what's not agree. You know? so yeah so i found myself in in meetings calling stuff out and what was really interesting is nobody welcomed it so so my team didn't welcome it because they're like why are you doing that you're throwing us under the bus but actually um and i was surprised at this the people that then we're kind of in the review meeting, they didn't welcome it either. It was, it was almost like an unspoken thing, like why, why we probably all know this is the case, but don't say it out loud. I remember with my team asking them some questions about some of the things and they're like, oh, well, we don't want to go there because it's potentially a can of worms. And I was like, well, no, <laughs> if we think it's a can of worms, we have to open it. Well, uh, I think you've got to go looking for the bad news. This is the mistake people make. You, if, if you don't run towards the sound of gunfire, chances are the gunfire is going to catch up with you. And to 
be a manager and to be a leader, especially in this kind of environment, takes enormous amounts of courage and resilience. It's tough because you are going to have to make some really hard decisions. Um, and But if you think deeply about the problem, and this is one of the things that I really uh, have a bee in my bonnet about, is I just don't believe there is enough deep thinking going on because we've created a culture which is all about shoot and then ask questions later. So it's all about rapid action because you know you see uh, people going through lean or whatever their Six Sigma version is, and they're they're battering out these um, these uh, sprints and these outputs. But what they're not generally doing is thinking, well, should we? Yeah. And why are we doing this? And who else is being affected? And how is this moving us towards our actual purpose? Because yeah. I think very often these sprints tend to be developed by the management team for themselves. And they're working on stuff because they've got a target to hit. So they're more interested in hitting that target than the overall company objective. And that's where the purpose piece comes in. Because if they were all aligned, then they would understand what the job to be done is. And yeah. most organizations that I've dealt with think the job is to sell to customers products, whether they need them or not, yeah. and hit their quota. Yeah. So that their share price valuation goes up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think particularly in publicly listed companies, you've got to report quarterly. You've got to, you've always got to be able to grow. And that's not necessarily the real world. Like you've, you've got a market contraction going on, then that's not going to be possible. And I do think in large organizations, they, there, there is an issue with management by spreadsheets. Mm driven by we've got to report to the investors and they're not going to be happy with this picture. So suddenly we have to cost out or yeah. sales up it's or a, whatever it, it is. And then, and then it gets pushed down from people. But all they're doing is shuffling numbers around. Uh, and the organization that, that I worked in, my, my you know, best, worst experience of my life, they'd really suffered from that because they were having a tough time. and every year or several times a year, they were having to go through a cycle of oh, the, the numbers don't look good enough, right? How do we rescue this? And then they would have armies of, you know, for a business of its size, armies of kind of uh, finance people doing stuff on spreadsheets. And But when you actually said, well, what does that mean? So we want to strip out the cost of this delivery. So we're going to make our service worse yeah. to our customers. And at the same time, we're targeting increasing the revenue we get from that customer. Mm. Let's give that a sanity check. It is possible. It is possible to take cost out and improve performance. But if you've been doing it continuously for five years and you recognize that your customers are leaving you, which means that you're now having to do the same process again, you're just in this death spiral of kind of cutting and more customers leaving. And actually, rather than saying, stop the root cause of this now is our quality is shit and our customers hate us how do we rectify that and in the short term there isn't a really profitable path to do that what we need to do is fundamentally get a hold of understanding how do we get our customers back on side improve services i think that's stopping at the macro level and if you go to the meta level you start looking at well hang on a second why are they behaving in this way what yeah. is it that the leaders are compensated on? How are they measured? How do they lose their job? Yeah. 
And when you start looking at it from that level, all the insanity starts to make sense because the job to be done ultimately is if you're working with a funded business, the job to be done from the general partners of the fund is to raise the second fund or the next fund. That's their number one job. And every other job in every other company that they invest in permeates from that number one job. Yeah. So when you understand that, it all, st- all their insanity starts to make a little bit of Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, th- But this is really interesting because you said something when we were in the green room about dysfunction being the result of how you treat your people. So I'd like to wrap up on that uh, in the final uh, minutes of the call. So if you th- look at the causes of dysfunction, what are the clues that you are running a dysfunctional management and leadership operation? So the clues, I would say, are there's very little constructive uh, disagreement, particularly from more junior members of the team with managers. If there's a lot of, you know, yes, we will do that. Yeah, my job is to make your job easier. My job is to deliver what you say. To me, that's a dysfunction because you've got people who've stopped thinking for themselves. So I think that's a sign of dysfunction. I think people just being miserable at work is a sign of dysfunction. Work doesn't have to be miserable. Work can be really enjoyable. We spend so much of our time of our lives at work that we absolutely, I put a post and and I've been stimulating debate on LinkedIn. I put a post that said, life is too short to be miserable at work. Yeah. And personally, I think life is too short to do anything that doesn't light you up and energize you. There's a wonderful... YouTube interview with, uh, I think his name is Mo Moat, and he was ex-senior chappy at Google. At Google, yeah, Google X, and, yeah. And yeah, he makes the point, you've got about half a million minutes in your life, and there you go, bloody quickly. I mean, my, my question to all of my clients is, how long are you dead for? That's a first sobering <laughs> moment. I, I always used to carry, when, when I met people in person, I always carry a tape measure. And then I asked them their age and said, so, you're 42, okay. And when do you expect to retire? Yeah. And then when do you expect to die? Okay, we'll give you another 10 years. So you've got that long to make up for that long. How much of yeah. that do you want to spend with miserable, penny-pinching tight asses who make your life? <laughs> and, yeah. and that's a, a wake-up moment. Because if yeah. you don't have that epiphany of someone slapping you around the head with it, you can very comfortably fall into the, the routine of accepting that stuff. Yeah. And another really good clue is people not listening to the feedback that they are getting from people on the front line, people in, yeah. uh, below the in the organization. Yeah. Okay. This has been really, really instructive. I, I know we deviated from the ethics conversation. I'd love to have you back uh, to go into a little bit more detail. <laughs> what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to around the topic? So, so there's some really good books on business purpose. So a couple of books I'd recommend. So one is called Grow the Pie by Alex Edmonds, professor at London Business School. And he takes a really detailed examination of the evidence of whether purpose-driven businesses will perform better. Very interesting. You know, so so he's, he's very evidence-based. So that's a great book. Another book on purpose called Deep Purpose by Professor Ranjay Galati from uh, Harvard Business School came out this year. That's more of a kind of case study book, but really kind of helps to unpack why, you know, purpose is not a magic spell. 
it unpacks why purpose-driven businesses, if you do it right, will perform better. And it's all about, in my language, I talk about clarity, alignment, engagement. He uses different language. Listen to, so, so I, I listen to three podcasts, actually four podcasts. I've added a new one to the list. Uh, and they're all good listens. And they're not directly on the topic of ethics, but you'll get some really good stuff there. So I listened to a podcast called Making Sense by Sam Harris. It's not a business podcast. It's uh, all stuff, neuroscience, philosophy, psychology, politics, but very deep conversations. It's great. That's a great podcast. From a business perspective, I listened to the High Performance Podcast. I listened to Diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett. Uh, you get some really great guests on the great interviewer, get some good insights there. And not all of them are people that I would agree with their business ethics. But I think, you know, you don't want to live in an echo chamber. You need to see Absolutely. the real world as is. And then the new one, which I've just added to the list, really, is the Radical Candor podcast by Kim Scott, who wrote the book Radical Candor. And uh, I, I think she's brilliant. And she is, you know, she calls a spade a spade, very bright. Um, but her sort of leadership and management philosophy resonates really strongly with a lot of the stuff that I've been, been talking about. Chris, thank you so much. This has been really, really interesting. How can people get hold of you? Um, so best way really is contact me through LinkedIn. Pretty visible on LinkedIn. I do lots of stuff on there. I'm pretty responsive. Um, so yeah, and I also got a YouTube channel. Uh, it's new. Call myself the business philosopher, Chris Blackwell, the business philosopher. And so if you search on YouTube, if you like watching videos, I've got about 28 on there. I think I've got about 58 subscribers. So you'll be getting in early. Uh, you'll be an early adopter. <laughs> Foundation members. Uh, Excellent. But, uh, Chris, thank yeah. you. Excellent. Really, really enjoyed it, Marcus. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So th this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. Now, I and 60 of my closest friends have created an ecosystem where we're helping people resolve some of the most difficult problems that you can face within your revenue operation. So we're looking at the big, gnarly, messy, wicked problems and looking at how you can fix those forever. So if you're interested in innovating your way through the coming recession, then drop me a line. My number 07515-937-221. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.